Well, good to see you all tonight. How many believe that God wants to speak to us this evening? Amen. To be honest, I don't see why anyone would want to ignore the word of God and replace it with some topical subject that has nothing to do with the majesty of the Waymaker. We're going to study the book tonight. Amen. So would you tonight open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you that Sunday we'll be back in the book of Acts, looking at chapter 21, specifically at verses 15 through 25, as Paul, through his rather securitous route, has now made his way to Jerusalem and meets with the leaders of the early church. It'll be a wonderful time in his words. So if you'd like to read ahead, Acts 21, 15 to 25. Now, last week, our opening chapter to 2 Samuel was a bit somber, and rightfully so, as David had received notice that King Saul and Jonathan and two of his brothers had been executed or died in war with the Philistines, and their bodies were abused and the other things that we had learned of earlier. And David writes a eulogy, if you will, and sets it to the tune uh, of the song of the bow. And he writes this lament, uh, mourning the loss of King Saul and also that of his beloved friend, Jonathan. Now we titled our time songs in the night. And we took that directly from the book of Job, where Job is being rebuked for being a self-righteous man and blamed for the many maladies and trials that had come his way by his supposed friend named Elihu. And Elihu couldn't have been more wrong because the Lord himself was bragging upon Job as a man who was upright in all his ways and righteous as well. I think we all recognize that too many times we've had miserable counselors when what we should have had was comforting consolers. And indeed, God is that. He comforts us with a comfort that only he can offer. Amen. Now, we noted last time that this lamentation that David wrote, set to the tune, as we mentioned, the song of the bow, did not contain any praise, nor did it offer a word of thanks. It was only sorrow. It was only grief. And we were reminded very practically that not every song is a happy, clappy song. There are some sad songs, and David indeed penned one and put it to that tune that was familiar to them at the time. Now, we also found a portion of our story recounting the death of Saul to be a matter of debate, as we were told one thing in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, and something that had a little bit of a twist to it in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And what we were told is that Saul had fallen on his sword in 31, and then we're told that a Malachite young man actually laid claim to mercifully killing Saul after he survived the attempt at taking his own life. Well, what we learned was, in essence, the young man basically admitted to assassinating the king of Israel, and he paid the consequences for it, instead of leaving the matter of Saul's life in God's hands, which the Jews believed was God's responsibility, and it still is today. The young man was thus executed by David for what he thought he would be rewarded for, and we'll see more about that in our next chapter. Now, we learned three things from chapter 1, if you remember First of all, we noted that God's word is still right when everything goes wrong. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. All that matters is what God says. Amen. Amen. 
Now, we also learned that when life brings you things you'll never forget, remember the things that will never change. And there are things that come our way in life, circumstances that unannounced and unwelcome intrude upon our lives. And we have to remember during those times that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is ever merciful and gracious. Now, we also learned uh, kind of a paraphrase of Romans chapter 8, 28, that only God can bring something good out of, out of something there's nothing good in. There was nothing good in the circumstances recorded in chapter 1. And yet, David did not see Saul's death as a relief. He saw it as the death of the Lord's anointed king. Even though Saul had cost him some 20 years of his own life, outside for at least a portion of 14 months, of being, or 16 months rather, being outside of his own homeland and away from his family and on the run. Yet, David did not let Saul's sin create his own sin. David didn't need any help in that area, and neither do we. I'll take those few amens, but you're all in on this. So, Now, last week we needed to peek a bit ahead into our chapter and covered a couple of our opening verses today. And in doing so, we noted that Saul and Jonathan's death actually opened the door for David to go back to the land of Israel and bring an end to his reputation as a defector. And that was the positive that came out of the very negative circumstance. Now, our chapter tonight has application to everybody in the room. It isn't one of those where you come to church and think, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. Well, tonight, so-and-so is you. So-and-so is me, because it's something that we all will face. It's circumstances that we've all been in, in one way, shape, or form, even though they manifest themselves differently in our own lives than they do in our text. The foundation of them is the same, and our title tonight is simply, The Spirit and the Flesh. The Spirit and the Flesh. Now, we are born of the Spirit as born-again Christians. Amen? Yet we still inhabit a fleshly body. And thus Paul would say concerning this reality in Galatians 5, 16 to 17, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are, what's the next word? Contrary or an opposite of one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Is there anyone here tonight who has ever done something you didn't mean to or wish you hadn't once you had done it. Yeah, been there, done that. I know we all have. Now, our internal struggle or this internal struggle exists within us all, this contrary battle that rages within us. And we're going to approach this particular subject from a bit of a different viewpoint or direction. And that is in our text tonight, rather than seeing one person battle flesh versus spirit, we're going to find one man in the spirit and another in the flesh. And I'm sure we've all had that experience as well, where we're trying to walk in the spirit. Somebody fleshes out on us, as the saying goes today. And I would imagine there's probably a person or two who has at times went in a bit of a difficulty with another person. You wondered who actually was in the spirit and who was in the flesh. And we'll find some help in that area tonight as well. Now, we're going to be reintroduced to a man that has a bit of a history with David already, a man named Abner. And Abner was the head of the forces of Saul or the head of Saul's army. 
And if you remember, he was sleeping right next to Saul one night when David and his nephew Abishai snuck into camp because the Lord had caused the sleep to fall upon Saul and his army. And he took the spear that was in the ground next to Saul's head as well as Saul's personal water jug. The next thing that happened was this in 1 Samuel 26, 13 to 16, that David went over to the other side and stood on top of a hill afar off, a great distance between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Or who has a position like yours? Why then have you not guarded the Lord your king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the king, speaking David, speaking of his own nephew Abishai. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So once again, David is not going to be Abner's favorite person, even down the road a bit after Saul and his sons are dead. Now, the two men are not going to meet face to face in our chapter, but there will be an encounter between them, so to speak, as David's representative or the head of David's army is going to be in direct confrontation with uh, this Abner, this adversary, so to speak, in this chapter and the next. Chapter three will open by telling us there will be a long history of war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And for all intents and purposes, Abner was actually the head of the house of Saul, not the other son of Saul that we'll meet this evening. Now, what we're going to find tonight is the actions of two men prove that one indeed is in the spirit and the other is a man of the flesh. And we'll learn some personal lessons from their exchanges. So would you stand tonight? Let's start with Second Samuel chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 11, uh, 11 initially and then finish off the chapter. Second Samuel 2 verse 1. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said to him, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him and every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Javish Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. 
Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of David, house of Judah, followed David. And at that time, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah, was seven years and six months. You may be seated. Now, we have mentioned numerous times when we studied the Psalms, and since then, how often David would employ contrast between two features or two individuals to highlight, including concerning God, one of his attributes in contrast to feeble man, or he would use contrast to distinguish between the blessed and the not-so-blessed, or the righteous and the unrighteous. And here we see, highlighted for us clearly in our opening 11 verses, the difference between a man who wanted to know what God's will was and a man who didn't care what God's will was, that being David and Abner. Now, remember when Saul defended his disobedience to Samuel and deflected his own sin onto the people saying, you know, that when Samuel said to him, you know, if you killed all the livestock from the Amalekites, what's this bleeding I hear of sheep in my ears? And he said, well, you know, the people wanted to take the good stuff so they could offer it to the Lord. And he transferred responsibility for his own lack of leadership and disobedience to God onto the people. The Lord had stated specifically that nothing was to be taken from the plunder because he did not want God's people being made wealthy off of their adversaries. Now, 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 28 records some of the dialogue where Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a set of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's blaming the people again. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord, but... Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, this is not something that Abner would have been ignorant of. He not only knew Saul had been rejected as king, he knew that David was the neighbor that was better than Saul. After all, he was the one who led the various groups in pursuit of David, as evidenced by the scene we recounted a moment ago from 1 Samuel 26 and the sleeping incident. Now, the contrast is clear between these two men in that David doesn't assume that because Saul is dead, that he should automatically go assume his throne or go back to Israel. He asks the Lord, should I now return to Judah or go up to Judah? And the Lord says, go up. And he says, then where? And the Lord says, 
to Hebron. So that's exactly what David did when the Lord told him to do it. He took his own wives. He took his men and their families. And while dwelling in Hebron, the men of Judah, the men of Judah implies the leaders of Judah, came and anointed David as king over their own tribe. They then told David about the valiant actions and respect that had been shown for King Saul by the men of Jabesh Gilead, which is kind of interestingly on the border between the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's hometown, and the tribe of Judah, David's home territory. Now, David speaks a blessing over these men. He promises to repay their kindness for showing such valor for the man who actually tried to kill David on and off for some 20 plus years. Now that is a man who is concerned for the things of God. That is a man who wants to walk according to the direction of the Spirit. And let me remind you that in Old Testament times, the Spirit would lead through the voice of the prophets. The Spirit would lead through direct revelation or indicating which way to go, even as through the Urim and Thummim that David had been answered in the past as he sought out uh, the epoch of the high priest in order to know the will of the Lord. And God would direct them and they were still being led by the Spirit of God, but not in the sense that we are today in that we have the distinct advantage of having the entirety of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of what we are reading indwelling within us. The indwelling of the Spirit is something exclusive to you and I as Christians today. Now, Abner is a man of complete contrast to David. He rejects God's choice as king over all of Israel and instead decides to make an, uh, up to this point, unknown son of Saul king over the remaining 11 territories and tribes. Now, a little bit of housekeeping here to stave off any confusion in our next couple of chapters. Verse 11 says, Ishbosheth actually reigned for two years. And we'll read in chapter 4 that five years later, he was actually killed. Now what that means, not that there is a conflict or contradiction in Scripture, but it simply means that what is being announced to us is what is going to happen three years later. Abner made him king, but not at the same time or simultaneously as the time of David. Now, I think that's interesting because, first of all, it gave Abner and Ishbosheth three years to repent and acknowledge the king that God had appointed over all of Israel, who was a better man than Saul. Now, in Revelation 2, 18 to 23, we're told, or the Lord says, I should say, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine breath, both being symbolic of judgment and justice. And the Lord says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to do what? To repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, 
You might think, why did you skip all the way up to the church age in Revelation? Well, because this is applicable to our text tonight, because God is unchanging. And he has the same view today that he had in David's day, in Abner's day, regarding the disobedience to his word. Here he is rebuking the church of Thyatira because of what they tolerate, because of who they allow to teach and what they allow her to teach. And people commit themselves to it and committing sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Do you believe the Lord is the unchanging God and his plan is immutable or it does not Change And what was told to Thyatira actually happens to Abner and Ishbosheth. They were both later killed. Now, this brings us to the first place we can pause and draw a conclusion regarding the issue of the spirit and the flesh. And it's something you know, but something we need to remember. And listen, here's what we can learn from verses 1 through 11. The spirit desires to know and pursue the will of God. The flesh resists or rejects it. The spirit desires to know and pursue the will of God. The flesh resists and rejects it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here tonight? Yeah, absolutely. And David inquires of the Lord. David does what the Lord tells him to do. His inquiry, as we mentioned a moment ago, was almost certainly through the Urim and the Thummim, the stones that would... Uh, most commentators believe somehow light up and indicate a yes or no answer or give a two-word answer like we have in our previous verses. But either way, David sought the Lord. He sought after God's will, even though he already had the word that he was to be king, but he wanted to be sure that he was doing things in God's way and at God's time. Now, Abner had no interest in what the plan of God was. He was a man of the flesh, and thus he was position and power hungry, and the house of Saul had been his meal ticket. And because of that, he rejected the plan of God for David and went with what he wanted to happen. Now, thankfully, none of us have ever done anything like that. Now, in Acts chapter 7, 51 to 53... Stephen, preaching to those who were about to take his life, said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's trying to win over the crowd. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your who? Your ancestors did. So wasn't that the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking in the days of David or in the time of Abner or Saul? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers or ancestors did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, if we look back to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen's sermon is recorded, we know his words were wonderfully received. No, they gnashed their teeth at him and ran at him in one accord and stoned him to death. Now... This is very symbolic of how the battle between the spirit and the flesh is going to uh, rage in us. Someone is going to desire to be the victor. And both are going to fight 
against one another until we are perfected and complete in Christ Jesus and put on immortal incorruptibility. The flesh is always going to resist or reject the will of God, no matter how clear or obvious it may be, even as it was clear to the whole nation that David was God's choice for the king of Israel. Abner rejected it categorically. Now in Acts 7, the fact that Jesus was the Son of God and thus the Holy One of Israel could not be more clear based on his teaching and his actions, yet he was despised and rejected by his own. Everyone knew David was destined to be king, but to the man of the flesh it made no difference what God wanted. Abner and Ishbosheth both rejected God's man after his own heart because they both loved position, they both loved Power. Let's look at 12 to 23. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now rise and compete before us. Some translations render that play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of God. Now, the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and uh, Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or the left, from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and asked him, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, lay hold of the one of one of the young men, and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Now, war between the supporters of Ishbosheth and those of David had been brewing over the years and now Abner seeks to bring all of Israel under the reign of the man he had chosen to be king and make, therefore, Judah and David his subjects as well. He leads the fighting men of Ishbosheth to Mahanaim and then on to Gibeon on the western portion of the tribe of Benjamin, somewhat northwest of Jerusalem. And there he meets Joab, a son of Zariah, who was David's sister as well as fighting men. So Joab and uh, Ahasael and uh, Abishai are all David's nephews. And the groups take up positions on either side of the pool. David's men encamping on one side, Abner's men on the other. And Abner then proposes that rather 
than an out-and-out fight and potentially a following civil war. Let's let a dozen of each of our men hash it out and do battle and will determine the victor that way. Now, I don't know if Abner was really hoping to avert a civil war. It's quite possible he was simply hoping to not expose himself to either harm or death at the hands of men like Joab and David's army who was with him because of their reputation as fierce fighters. Now, Joab accepted the proposal. Twelve men from each team, so to speak, from Benjamin and Isposheth, were selected, the same from David's men. They instantly grasped one another's heads and thrust one another through with the sword, and they all fell down dead together, all 24 men. And the Hebrew name of the place is Helkath Hazarim, and it is the field of sharp edges, as our text says. Now, verse 18 tells us that three of King David's nephews were there. As we mentioned, we've already met uh, Joab and uh, now Asahel or Abishai. And Asahel is introduced to us. And we're told that he is a man who's known for being fleet of foot. And he has running skills. He runs like a gazelle, our text says. And Asahel pursues Abner. Abner asks him who he is. If he is Asahel, he says, I am. And Abner warns him and even says, turn aside from pursuing me. Kill one of my young men and take their armor if you're looking for a trophy and a reputation that goes with it. Because if you keep after me, I'm going to kill you. Which he did with the blunt end of his spear, which would be usually sharpened so it could be stuck into the ground so the sharp end of the spear would not be thrust into the rocky soil. So it wasn't that it was just round like a shovel handle like we think of today. It would have had a pointed end. And the fact is he stabs this young man in the stomach all the way through so that he falls down and dies in spite of his comment about how can I look your brother Joab in the face, my former friend, if I have to take you out. Now, this is an action that he will pay dearly for in the future. Now, in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, we're told the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who do what? What's the next word? Practice. Not occasionally fall into these things or fall prey to them, but those who have them as a habitual practice unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we could hardly label the actions of Abner against Asahel as murder. They would be classified as self-defense. However, that he was a man of the flesh is evident through his other actions. He would not submit to the clearly known will of God. He sought to increase his power by advancing the puppet kingdom of Ishbosheth. He sent young men to battle to their deaths as he looked on and even offered to Asahel to kill one of his own men so Asahel could have his armor as a trophy and thus the bragging rights over a young and inexperienced soldier. Now, he makes that offer, and I couldn't help but think about the fact that part of the problem in dealing with people who are governed by the flesh is they often think we think like they do. But we have the mind of Christ, and we do not think in the manner of the world. 
Now, there are times where our battles of spirit and flesh are strictly internal. And I'm sure most of us have wondered at times if our flesh is driving our thinking or if we're being led by the spirit when we felt like we needed to do this or go there or do this thing or make that decision. And we were wondering if the Lord was leading us. And here's kind of a go-to litmus test when we want to make such a determination, at least uh, a partial aspect of making such decisions. Here's a second reminder tonight. Listen, the flesh will always choose itself over others. The flesh will always choose itself over others. Paul, in the famed chapter regarding marriage and the comparison between Christ and his love for his church and the husband-wife relationship, the Spirit inspired Paul to say no man ever hated his own flesh. And this is a reality. Flesh is always going to choose its own self and its own desires and its own passions. That's why Paul warned about the lust of the flesh and lust simply meaning to long for the forbidden. And our flesh is going to long for forbidden things, even as we see this evidenced by the actions of Abner and the poor leadership of Ishbosheth. Now, thinking about what we have learned thus far about Abner, as we mentioned, he rejected God's will. He went beyond that and directly opposed it by anointing Ishbosheth as king over 11 tribal areas, which is a foreshadowing of the divided kingdom after Solomon. He sought to take the one territory under David's authority from him. He sent 24 men to their deaths, killed David's nephew. And what stopped other people in their tracks when they came upon Asahel's body made no difference to Abner, who just kept going after he killed the young man, the brother of his former friend. Is that a man of the flesh or of the spirit? It's obviously a man of the flesh. Even the way he stated his concern over the impact of killing Asahel and how it would uh, touch his uh, former friend's life, Joab put himself in the center and said, how can I face your brother? That was his primary concern because he was a man of the flesh. Now in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we're told, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You know what nothing means in the Greek, right? Nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, there's nothing wrong with taking care of our families and ourselves, but also for the interest of what? Others. That's going to be something specific and even to a degree exclusive to the Christian, putting other people's needs as equal to our own. We've seen David fight the internal battle and lose some skirmishes and win some others. And we have no such history to consider when we examine the life of Abner. He was a man of the flesh through and through, and thus every decision was based on how it either impacted or benefited himself. Everything he did was based on selfish ambition and conceit, and he esteemed no one better than himself, as we're going to see in chapter 3. Now, Jesus said to us that all who would read the scriptures and seek to live for him in Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the what? The law and the prophets. 
Now, Jesus makes this association between the golden rule of the law of God, a law that at the time of our reading and text was some 500 years old and certainly known to all of Israel, including Abner. But this is what the flesh does. It resists the will of God. It rejects the will of God and thus the word of God and always chooses itself over others. So when we're wanting to know if our flesh is trying to lead us or if we're being led by the spirit, we should look to the potential outcome and see who the beneficiary is going to be ourselves or others. Now, let's finish off this chapter by looking at 24 through 32 and pick it up there where Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab says, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bethron, and came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants nineteen men in Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men three hundred and sixty men who died. Then they took Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and all his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now, as Asahel's brothers continue their pursuit of Abner, he comes to a point that is to his military advantage. He parks on top of a hill, and he asks Joab and Abishai, how long are you going to continue pursuing me? Haven't you had enough bloodshed? Why are you continuing this pursuit? It's only going to lead to bitterness in the end. He says at the end of verse 26, we're brothers. How long are you going to keep pursuing your brethren? And then Joab says with an oath, listen, this would have never happened if you would have kept your mouth shut. And I'm paraphrasing. If you hadn't have said what you said this morning or earlier, I should say, if you hadn't have done what you did and said, choose the 12 pairs of young men to fight each other, the next day we would have gone home anyway. And yet, in spite of what had happened with his brother, at least for the moment, Joab seizes the moment, has the shofar, blow the signal to cease the pursuit of Israel, and both groups return to their respective halls. Joab and his men took Asahel's body home to Bethlehem, had it buried in the family tomb, and then they make the overnight journey back to Hebron, the temporary headquarters for King David and his men, until he will later ascend to Jerusalem and make his headquarters there. Now the casualty report between the two groups was 20 counting Asahel amongst David's men. And for Abner, it was 360. 
Now, as we mentioned from 2 Samuel 3, 1, that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Well, we can answer the question that Abner posed to Joab about how long is the sword going to continue, and the answer to that is until the Prince of Peace comes and brings peace on earth. And until that time, there's going to be wars of spirit and flesh, and there's going to be wars of flesh against flesh. And it's only when the Prince of Peace returns that there will be a time of peace. And by the way, Jesus is coming again. Now in Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, we're told that the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Somebody say, Amen. This is a time that is at least seven years away. When the Lord returns, fights against his enemies with the sword of his mouth and brings about a peace that lasts for at least a millennium on the earth. Satan is then released for a short time. War breaks out again and the beast and false prophet are already thrown into the lake that burns with fire. The devil who inspired and directed them will then join them. And then there's coming a time where all who rejected Christ will be judged for that decision. And then eternity will begin And we will enjoy peace like we've never known forever and ever and ever. Amen. Now, what can we learn from this last section of what we just read from Isaiah? And that's just simply this. Listen this evening. The spirit and the flesh can never lead to the same outcome. The spirit and the flesh can never lead to the same outcome. They are not two different roads to the same end. They have different destinations altogether. Thus, Jesus would say in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is what? Is spirit. Then Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And don't think you're not going to suffer, as he would say explicitly later in verse 12. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. And then he describes it as walking in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And in regard to these, those who still practice those other things, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, dissipation meaning unsavedness, speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God, how? In the spirit, 
Jesus said the flesh and the spirit are distinct from one another. And Peter, through the inspiration of the spirit, illustrates the point and drives it home. Now, sometimes the outcome of whatever we let rule us is internal. Sometimes it's external. But the reality is this from James 1, 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, let no one say, when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own, what? Desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth, what? Death. Now, the spirit and the flesh cannot produce the same outcome. The spirit brings life. The flesh brings death. In our lives, that death isn't necessarily a physical death, but it can be a joy killer. It can steal our effectiveness when we decide to bow to the pressures of the flesh. And David knew he was going to be king over Israel, but David wanted to know the specifics regarding God's will and timing. He asked the Lord if it was time to go. The Lord said yes. He asked the Lord where. The Lord told him to Hebron. Abner knew that David was going to be king, but he rejected God's will because he was a man who was flesh-driven, hungry for power, with little to no regard for human life, even that of those under his charge. The two men's ends make our point, as Abner will soon meet his end, and David will die an old man. Now, between our text and David's death, we're going to see David fight his own battle between the spirit and the flesh multiple times. We know he's going to lose some of those battles, but the Lord's going to remain faithful to him through them all. Even though David had grieved and even though we'll read of him giving the enemies of God the opportunity to blaspheme, the Lord covered his sin, and David did not die. Listen, it's better to live for the Lord. It's better to follow his word. It's safer to follow his word. We ought to be seeking after his kingdom and its righteousness and allow him to add all the other things to us as he instructed us and promised us he will do. And we're all going to have this internal battle from time to, he- to from time to time. But first John four four says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I've told you in time past, and I'll remind you tonight in conclusion. We don't have to sin if we don't want to. The devil can't make us do anything. The Spirit of God is greater in us. And God certainly doesn't tempt us. God empowers us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no man is tempted beyond the normal temptations of man, but God who is faithful will in the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Even when temptations come, we still have an exit strategy that Jesus has established himself, and that's simply walking according to the Spirit. The devil can't push us around. He's not greater than the Spirit of God that is in us. We don't have to sin if we don't want to, so we have to battle wanting to in order not to do so. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we're grateful for our time and your word again tonight. And thank you for this uh, 
Again, another ugly and difficult chapter as it relates to the characters that are reported to us. And Lord, we thank you that even as we have seen at the end of 1 Samuel, how David had made some really, really poor decisions, took matters into his own hands, even created for himself the reputation of a defector. But when David repented, when David grieved over Saul and did not approach the situation like an opportunist, but rather from his heart grieved over the loss of the king of Israel and his dear friend Jonathan, when it was time to go up, You didn't say to him, after what you did, you're not my guy anymore. You said, go up and go to Hebron. And we thank you, Lord, that as the Proverbs report to us, so the righteous may fall seven times, he rises again. And thank you, Lord, that we can rise up from our afflictions and poor decisions and live according to your word once again and be restored. So, Lord, we thank you again for these lessons tonight from your word. And thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us, even when we make poor or wrong decisions. So we're blessed to have that in our knowledge archive, God. And we give you glory for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing journey these past couple of books have been. And we've got some really interesting ground to cover in coming days. But David, we have to remember, was the man after God's own heart. And that is something that we can enjoy as well as the Lord weighs the heart. He knows that uh, he has taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. And he remembers that we're dust and we fail and we struggle. Yet, when a Christian goes down, they don't have to stay down. So let me encourage you. If you've had a, done a spiritual belly flop lately, get up and get moving again. And the Lord will help you up and help you on your way because that's what he has always done. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Would you all stand tonight?